Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Y'all doing well? Good. I'm glad to hear it. Hope you had a good week. We had, uh, you know, was it Tuesday night? We had the, the rain. I was in a uh, kind of a discipleship group down in Avondale. A little nice rain, some lightning in the, few, you know, in the distance. And then we showed up here Wednesday and found out, I don't know if a little mini tornado went through here. It was crazy. We lost, I think, five, six trees. Uh, one of them took out one of our light posts, you know, and with all the construction, it's like, hey, the more the merrier, right? It's good. If I've not met you, my name's Steve. We're so glad you're here. We are studying the book of Revelation. And uh, so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 4, verse 1 today. And the next week, finally, we kind of get back into the text, but we wanted to take some time to talk about the rapture. So if you're new, let me just real quickly, uh, the outline for the book of Revelation is really simple. It's given to us. It's in chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus tells John to write the things you have seen, the things which are, the things are, which are to come hereafter. Chapter 1 are the things that he has seen. This is this beautiful description of Jesus in his glory. You get to, to things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3. That's seven local churches that John would be familiar with, but Jesus writes letters to them. Chapter 4, verse 1 on are the things which are to come hereafter. In fact, if you look at verse 1, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The, <coughs> excuse me, the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So our understanding of the book of Revelation and the way that we're approaching it in a literal perspective. So in a, when, you, when you study the Bible literally, it doesn't mean there's not figurative language, because clearly there is, and so you're to understand it is that way. But we would see these, this from chapter 4, verse 1 on, is still being future. It's still what is to come. And so that's the way that we're, we're going to view it. But the book of Revelation doesn't deal with one of the pieces of what is still prophetic, uh, which is called the rapture. A lot of misunderstanding as to what the rapture is. So last week, we took the whole week and talked about what do we mean by the rapture. And in case you weren't here, I would really encourage you uh, to go watch that video uh, because a lot of misunderstanding. But if I could just recap it. What we mean when we say the rapture is the rapture is the sudden God-caused removal of the church out of the world. We looked at three passages of Scripture, John chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is kind of the central passage for it all. But the heart of the rapture is that Jesus is going to return from heaven with those who have already died, who have already gone to be with him. 
They are going to come with him. He's going to stop in the clouds. They are going to come and go through that process of resurrection. Then the Bible says, we who are alive and remain will then be changed in a moment. This perishable but on imperishable will be caught up together with the clouds. We go back to heaven with Jesus and thus we will forever be with the Lord. And that's why the Bible calls the rapture our blessed hope. And sadly... There are Christians who don't get it, don't understand it, and almost are are fearful of the rapture. The rapture is nothing to be fearful of. We get to go home. It's wonderful. And trust me, if Jesus were to come back today, there's not one person who a week from now is going, oh man, I wish he had waited for a week. There is nothing better here that you're going to miss. There's nothing to be fearful of. It's a glorious thing because we get to go home. And the cool thing is we get to go home and we don't even have to die, right? That's, uh, you know, I, I always uh, think about it from the Christian perspective is, man, we don't fear death, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's just the process of dying. It's not fun. It's hard. I've been been with people this week who have dealing with death and in hospice and going to it's it's hard but it's our blessed hope we we look forward to it the issue that i want to deal with this week because it is an issue of great debate you you know the saying wherever two or three christians are gathered you'll have four opinions (laughs) right I don't know what it is about us, but we always want to nuance things to death. And so, a lot of discussion about the question of the time of the rapture. When does it take place? And if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to this whole subject of the rapture, maybe you're not familiar with this. And so, I, I want to kind of lay it out. I want to give you some of the different views. Now, there are three major views that we're going to look at. The reality is, if you really get into this, of these views, there are like sub-views. Like the first one we're going to talk about, there's like a classical view, there's a futuristic view, and, and we don't have time. I'm just going to cover the big ones. Uh, obviously, the third one's the one that I hold to, so you'll, you'll know where we're going with this. But here's the other thing, is, is that if I don't nuance your view exactly as you see it, please understand, I'm not trying to shortchange it, and I'm not also trying to just create a straw dog that I can blow over. I just don't have time to get into all of the little pieces of all of this. So I'm going to try to stay at, at, a, at a high level to, to get to the point of... Um, why I believe the Bible teaches what I do. But here's the thing, folk. There are really good believers that see this differently, right? And you cannot, there is not, I mean, this would be, in a sense, simple if we had one verse, one passage, and we could just go, boom, this tells us when it's going to happen. It's just not there. So what we're all doing is trying to look at the evidence and point to it. And so people have different views, and we can love one another. It's, it's honestly, it's not that big of a thing because you're just going to find out my views, right? And, and, you know, we'll be fine with that. That's cool. But the point is, is that this isn't, in some ways, when you look at eschatology, this isn't that big of a thing of when the rapture takes place. Now, I think it's important. That's why I 
pretty uh, pretty committed to what I think because I think it affects the way that, that we live. But ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, it isn't probably the biggest thing. So let's let's not let these kind of things divide us, but actually let us walk together in harmony. So when you think about timing, here's the difficulty both in the Old Testament, but primarily because we're in the book of Revelation, I'm going to talk about Revelation. There are four major events that are still to come. We, we call it eschatology. That's a study of things to come. So when you look at the book of Revelation, there are four major events that we're going to be talking about, and the rapture's not one of them. What are they? Well, the first thing is the tribulation. It's seven years. It is chapter 6, verse 1 of the book of Revelation through the end of chapter 18. It's the bulk of the book. It's about seven years where God is going to be judging the world and preparing Israel for the kingdom. The second major event is the second coming of Christ, which is obviously a major theme through the entire Bible, through the Old Testament. That's chapter 19. Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. The third major event then is that kingdom, where he is for a thousand years going to reign. So right now in our Bible reading, for Tammy and I, we're in the book of Isaiah, and the lion's going to lay down with the lamb, and the child's going to play by the hole of the cobra, and there's not going to be any, you know, any sickness and disease and it's a thousand years of peace and justice and equity all the promises that God made uh, to the children of Israel to Abraham to David all of that will be fulfilled in that millennial kingdom that's Revelation chapter 20 then what we read in the Revelation chapter 20 there's one final rebellion the great white throne judgment then we move into the last piece which is eternity or the eternal state this is the new heavens the new earth this is our ultimate place where we're going to live forever and the new Jerusalem is coming out now for those of you that are linear thinkers like me let me put it in the timeline because I think that even helps you make sense so here's the four events. You have the tribulation, seven years. It's the bulk of the book of Revelation. Then you have the second coming of Jesus, which is what brings the tribulation to a close. Then you have a thousand years where Jesus is literally going to reign. And we believe as Christians that we get to reign with him. The last piece then is eternity, and that just goes on forever and the cool thing is it gets two whole chapters in the, in the book of Revelation. When does the rapture take place? Because unless you see chapter 4, verse 1, where the trumpet sound speaking with me says, come up here, referencing the rapture, unless you see that as that, the book of Revelation doesn't mention it. Well, what do we know about the rapture? What we do know is that somewhere, someplace, it has to take place prior to Jesus' return at the second coming. Why? Well, if you go over to chapter 19, you can look at that whole passage. Let me just summarize it back in verses 7 and 8. It says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready so he, he invokes here the picture of a marriage feast and a marriage supper we're going to talk about that later today 
And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. So Jesus coming, he talks about it being a marriage supper. Let me ask you, who is the bride of Christ? Is it the Old Testament saints? Is it Israel? No, it is the church. The rapture is about the church. And so when Jesus comes, he comes with his bride. So you, you go back to our timeline here. At some point, the rapture has to happen either before or in conjunction with the second coming of Christ. So we know, we kind of know when it has to happen by. Does that make sense? You're tracking with me. So this is what we know. So in that, there are three views. As I mentioned already, I'm going to give you the first two I don't agree with, and I'll give you the third one that I do. And you can kind of pick up what the view is by the title, post-tribulation. So post means it happens at the end of the tribulation. So the church will go through these seven years of tribulation, and then just prior to, or at the time of Jesus' second coming, that the rapture will take place. In fact, really, the post-tribulation view sees it as a kind of another facet. So you have Jesus coming with those who have died, and as he gets to the clouds, we're caught up with him, but instead of returning to heaven, which I would suggest John 14 tells us, he's going to take us to his father's house. Instead of that, we go up and then we immediately come back with him at his second coming, which may be just a hair disappointing. We finally get out of here and we come right back, right? So this view sees the rapture happening there and you say why well one of the big arguments you always hear from people who hold a post-tribulation view is that a pre-tribulation view which is what i hold and we hold as a church is relatively new it's they would argue that it first got started talking about within the church in, in like the early 1800s which is actually factually not correct I mean, personally, I would like to argue that Paul talked about a preacher, but then we'll hold that off to later. But actually, you do see it back as early as the fourth century uh, of the church age that the church was talked about that God would take us out before we, we leave here. So I don't, I don't believe that. Secondly, there's always this argument that why are we promised, right? The church has never promised peace and prosperity. And that the answer to that is true. We're not. We're, we're promised that there's going to be hardship. But we, what we do see, though, is that when God is going to bring judgment, he often takes his people out. You see it at the flood. Right before the judgment of the world comes, God puts Noah in the ark. He takes him out. You, you, see, you see it with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Before the judgment comes, he gets his people out. I think you also see it with Rachel or Rahab and Jericho, right? There's protection there for the people of God. And so, again, I, I just would see it differently. Another reason that they would argue it is that they see the rapture happening in, in Scripture, uh, specifically in Matthew chapter 24, that seems to reference 
the rapture. So in Matthew 24, which, by the way, if you're not familiar with 24, Jesus is outlining all the things that are to come. It is the it is the tribulation. It's really Revelation 6 to 18 in a very short period of time there in Matthew 24. So when he gets here uh, to verse 30, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. And nobody argues that. But they would say, oh, but we also see the rapture here. So it says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory second coming to Christ no disagreement and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the end of the sky one end of the sky to the other and they said well there's the rapture you had the trumpet of God well sure enough what do we talk about last week happens with the rapture you hear the voice of Jesus the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and then we're caught up and they go there, right? They're going to be caught up and gathered. And so they say, there it is. There's the rapture with the second coming. But what we would see there is not the rapture taking place, which by the way, where does it talk about the dead in Christ being raised? It's not there. And what we would say, well, what's happening here is not the rapture. What what we would see happening, which is where he's going now, is he's going to the kingdom. Who's going to go into the kingdom? So you have a judgment now of the sheep and the goats when you get to Matthew chapter 25. And so what he's doing is he's bringing all of those who are alive at the end of the tribulation who have faith in Christ and he's gathering them together because they're the ones that are going to go into the kingdom. They're the ones who are going to populate. He's going to start now with believers going into this kingdom, this time of thousand years, which, by the way, they're going to have children, and ultimately there is another rebellion. And you kind of have the problem of going, okay, if, the, if this is the moment when, when the rapture takes place, well, think about what happens to those of us who are alive and remain. We're changed, right? This perishable puts on imperishable we get our new body well in that new body do we procreate do we have families jesus said no we're going to be like the angels in heaven there's no marriage or giving them marriage in heaven well then what happens during the kingdom if we're all changed where how are kids going to be born how are our people going to you know it's we're going to we're going to be in our glorified body so who goes into the kingdom? And it creates a real problem there. So I don't think that is correct. The second view is what we call a mid-tribulation view, which, as it sounds, mid in the middle. It's also known as the pre-wrath view. So one of the things you see in Revelation, you also see it in Matthew 24, is that something happens in the middle of the tribulation where it goes from bad to really bad. It's the abomination of desolations. We'll get into this. I, again, I don't mean, to, I don't want to get a sidetracked here. And so what this view says is that the church will go through the first three and a half years, which isn't quite as bad. But at that midway point, that's when the rapture happens. And so before it gets really bad and God pours out the, those last bold judgments, 
will be taken out. And it's really based on this idea and you, you read about in Revelation 10 and 11. Again, I hate to get ahead of ourselves here. But what the Bible says is during this time, the first three and a half years, there are going to be two witnesses in the stead of Elijah and Moses who are going to come. They're going to preach the gospel. Many are going to get saved. In fact, there's 144,000 Jewish preachers who are going to go out. This is going to be a time a lot of people coming to faith in Christ. But they're going to call down judgments, just like Moses did in Egypt and Elijah did during the time of Ahab. And the Antichrist is not going to be able to kill them. Finally, at the three and a half year mark, he does kill them. What we read there in Revelation 11 is their bodies lay dead in the streets of Jerusalem and everybody's going to throw a party. They're so happy that these guys are dead. And at the end of three days, God, though, is going to raise them up. They're going to come to life, and then God is going to call them home, and they are going to be taken up. And that's where they say that's when the rapture takes place. The problem with that is, is these 144,000 Jewish preachers that have already been commissioned are already out preaching. We see them in Revelation chapter 14 still ministering. They weren't taken out. So I don't think that's where it is. I, and I don't think that it's, it's accurate to say only the last three and a half years are viewed as tribulation. These seven years are viewed. It's all a part of it. So what's the third view? The third view is this. It's the pre-tribulational rapture. This idea that the rapture happens prior to the tribulation. pre that Jesus returns for his church. It could happen at any time. Once the church is gone, and by the way, as we'll see, this is not what triggers the tribulation, but once the church is gone is then when the tribulation will take place. Now, there's a boatload of reasons. Let me give you a couple of resources if you're really interested in getting into this. Uh, one of the classic works, a guy by the name of Dwight Pentecost, great writer, uh, prof at Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote a classic work called Things to Come. He actually gives 28 reasons of why he holds to a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, Dr. Paul Benware in his book, Understanding End Time Prophecy, I think gives seven. I don't have time to do all that. I'm going to give you five five reasons they're somewhat nuanced uh because again i can't just go to one verse that says this but i think these are the things that to me are, are so important so let's talk about some of the and again we we can we can disagree on this it's not that big a thing but i but i i want you to understand why i believe jesus can come back today because here's the issue if you hold to a post-tribulational rapture you, you cannot believe Jesus can come back today because it happens at the end of tribulation. We're clearly not in the tribulation. If you hold to a mid-tribulation, can Jesus come back today? The answer is no. We're at least three and a half years out from that because the tribulation hasn't started. But if you hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, Jesus can come back today. We live in that expectation that it could be today. So let me share some of the reasons. The first one is this. 
It is the nature and the purpose of the tribulation. See, where a lot of people don't understand is they think that revelation is almost standalone, right? This whole idea of seven years, this tribulation, is just something that, you know, is revealed. Like it's one of those mysteries that we talked about. And the reality is that's not true. The first place where we see the seven years of tribulation is actually back in the Old Testament is Daniel chapter 9. Would you turn there with me? You've got to understand this. Daniel chapter 9. Let me give you context for it. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel was taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Remember, Judah had rebelled. God finally put them in captivity to, to Babylon for 70 years. Daniel, who is in Babylon, is reading the writings of Jeremiah the prophet who was a contemporary of Daniel before he was taken away from Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah's writing, he said 70 years is how God is going to judge his people before he reestablishes them. Well, Daniel now is an older man. And he begins to realize, well, wait a minute. We're getting close to those 70 years being up. What is God going to do? And so he prays and he seeks God. God sends Gabriel with this very specific message about God's purpose and what God is doing and going to do with the nation of Israel. So let's pick it up here in verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know, Daniel, and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the weak wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one of his decree, and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So 550 years before Jesus comes, God reveals this to Daniel. Very important pieces. Let's go back to verse 24. First of all, 70 weeks. The weeks there, is, he's not referring to days. It's like the idea of a dozen. If I tell you a dozen, depending on how you're wired, you might think, I would think actually donuts, to be honest with you. A dozen donuts. But a dozen doesn't mean donuts. It means 12, right? It could be a dozen eggs. It could be a dozen bagels. Better yet, a double dozen chocolate donuts right there you go right it, it's 12 so when he says weeks here he's not saying seven days what he's saying it's a group of seven so there are 70 groups of seven and then notice what he says that are decreed for your people 
Let me ask you, who are Daniel's people? Are they Christians? No, there was no such thing as Christians. He's a Jew. God is working with the Jews here. So there are 70 groups of these sevens that are decreed upon you, your people, and your holy city. Let me ask you, as Christians, do we have a holy city that we go to? No. I mean, it's certainly not Goodyear. We can at least agree with that, right? No, we don't have a holy city. We will one day. It's the new Jerusalem for all of eternity, but that's another story. We don't. Do the Jews have a holy city? Absolutely. The city of Jerusalem. So understand the scope. This is about this is about Daniel's prayer, right? What about your people, Jews? And this is what he's praying for. So it says 70 groups of seven have been decreed upon your people, and there are six things that will be accomplished in these 70 weeks. He says, to finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So there's 70 groups of seven that I've determined that are going to do and accomplish these six things. So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Simple math, 62 and and 7 equals how many? 69. So out of these 70 weeks, 69 of them are in preparation for the Messiah to come. And we know when these when the clock's going to start. The clock's going to start when there is a decree that is issued to rebuild Jerusalem because they've destroyed Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 2. We know the exact day that decree went forth by Artaxerxes. It was under Nehemiah. It's in Nehemiah chapter 2. It's in the month of Nisan. I forget exactly what day. I think like 445 BC. So, 69 weeks from there to Messiah the Prince. We believe that what he's referencing here when he says groups of seven, he's not talking days, weeks, and months. He's talking years. You fast forward from when Artaxerxes made that decree to go and rebuild Jerusalem. You fast forward 483 years. Some really smart men have gone in who understand all the days and leap years and this, that, and the other. And what they believe is literally to the day, 483 years later, you know what happened? Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey at the triumphal entry. 69 until Messiah the Prince. Then what happens? He says there in uh, in verse uh, 26, then after that, the Messiah will be cut off. So what happens four or five days after the triumphal entry? Jesus dies on the cross. Remember, what is he trying to accomplish here? We'll, we'll go, back to, go back to the ver- first verse, those six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. Where did that happen? That happened on the cross. But notice the last three to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place, those didn't happen. Why? Because those will happen after that last week. Let's keep looking at it. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. 
the people of the prince who is to come, key phrase there, will destroy the city and sanctuary. What happened in AD 70? Titus, the Roman emperor, came in and completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. That's where the temple was taken down so that one block was not upon another. Complete fulfillment of Matthew 24 and Daniel chapter 9. He will destroy the city and then will come with the flood. Then verse 27. And he who the prince who is to come, this is the Antichrist, the beast, the one that we see in Revelation, will make a firm covenant with many for what? One week. Here's the last seven years. This is the tribulation. What starts the tribulation is not the rapture. What starts the tribulation is the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with, with many nations and Israel to protect them for seven years. Oh, by the way, you keep reading, but in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop, right? That's the abomination or desolations that Jesus talks about, the revelation talks about. He's going to set up a statue of him in the, in the uh, temple there in Jerusalem. This is the tribulation. The tribulation is not about the church. It's about Israel. It's about Israel. I think that's why you see in the book of Revelation, chapters 1, 2, and 3, the church is mentioned by name 19 times. From chapter 4, verse 1 to the end of the book. You know how many times the church is mentioned? Once. The end of chapter 22 in his final closing greetings. He's not prophesying anymore. It's not there because it's not about us. I think we have to be gone. I got to hurry, all right? You can tell. It's maybe not that important, but I'm passionate about it, right? Because to me, this, this is all important. Secondly, and it's important because of this. What New Testament scripture tells us is that we are to live in the, with the idea of the imminent return of Christ. By imminent means that it can happen at any moment. We are to live today as though Jesus could come back today. We're to live tomorrow as though Jesus could come back tomorrow. I mean, for instance, James chapter 5. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the field being patient about it until it gets early and late range you too be patient strengthen your heart for the coming of the lord is near in the greek it doesn't mean it's going to be near but it is near now it's in the moment it can happen don't complain brother and against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged behold the judge is standing right at the door and again in the greek it's not like he's moving towards the door or he's going to go to the door but he's standing there with his hand on it it, it could happen but at any moment. 1 Corinthians 1 7, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord. You're not waiting for seven years. You're not waiting to say, hell, oh, this can't happen for three and a half years, but we're waiting eagerly as though it could happen today. Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, Maranatha is an Aramaic word. Our Lord comes. It's, it's what they use as a benediction to always remind them. Our Lord comes. Our Lord comes. Live in light of this. Even the book of Revelation, he gets back to just giving his closing words. What's his last word to us? Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward's with me. Be prepared. It could happen today. 
In fact, you really struggle if you hold, I think, to a uh, mid or a post-tribulation or rapture view. How do you deal with this being the blessed hope? Right? If I got to wait three and a half years and walk through tribulation, or I got to wait seven years, and oh, by the way, in those seven years, half of the world's population is going to be killed. As a Christian, they're going to hunt you down. They're going to try to, they're going to destroy you. You can't buy or sell. Listen, how does that become our blessed hope? That's like the coming nightmare. In fact, you even think of that passage we looked at back at last week in 1 Thessalonians 4. You remember they were at church. He had only been there three weeks. Their question is, they thought Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime, but we had our imaginary Joe, and Joe accepted Jesus, but Joe died. And the question was, did Joe miss it? Is Joe not going to get to be with Jesus because he already died? And Paul said, no, I don't want you. They've already gone to be with Jesus. When Jesus comes back, he's going to come with them and therefore comfort one another, right? Think about it. If, the, if Paul was thinking, oh man, there's, there's got to be seven years of judgment, it's like his answer would have been, don't worry about Joe. Say, hey, you need to be like Joe. Joe got to miss the tribulation. You're going to have to go through the tribulation, right? Joe got it off better. That's not his point. His point is, is that there's going to we're all going to miss it because we're going to be there. In fact, many promises to the church that they will not, will not face it. First Thessalonians, again, a lot of times people read this as salvitic. You know, he's talking about, you know, from damnation of hell. That's not the context of First Thessalonians. He's talking about coming judgment. He says, and to wait for a son from heaven who raised up from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. He picks it up again in chapter 5 where he's talking about this, the, the coming judgment, the seven years of tribulation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation, deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died so we'll live together with him. Revelation chapter 3, is talking to the church of Philadelphia. Because you have kept my word of perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is upon the whole world, to test everyone. I'm coming quickly. Again, he's talking now about the judgment that he's going to be writing about in chapters 4 all the way through the rest of the book. But I'm going to keep you from that. But here's the, here's the one that to me is just the capstone. Historically, when you look at the imagery that Jesus used, you, you see it in Matthew 24 and 25, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see it in Revelation 19. If you understand the picture of the Jewish wedding tradition that was alive and well at Jesus' time, I think it makes it perfectly clear. So when Jesus was here, I had a former professor at Moody, a really godly man who was really into Jewish studies. And at Jesus' time, this is how, if you're going to get married, how it worked. The prospective groom would leave his father's house and would go to the house of the woman that he wanted to marry. And he would make a covenant with the father as to the dowry, as to what this was going to cost. He would pay the dowry, and the bride and the groom would actually enter into a covenant relationship. Oh, by the way, in that ceremony of that covenant relationship, you know what they did? They shared 
a glass of wine. Oh, by the way, this is my cup of the new covenant, right? And at that point, they were considered married. You know, for those of us that are old enough to remember the old King James, you know, Mary uh, was betrothed to her husband, uh, Joseph. Betrothed, what does that mean, right? It's not, well, it's like they were married, but they didn't live together. They didn't sleep together. They were covenantly as though they were married, but they didn't act on that. And so once that covenant was made and they were betrothed legally, in essence, married together, that's why Joseph was thinking about putting her away instead of just walking away, right? They were in a covenant relationship, marriage already, even though they had not lived together or slept together. The, the husband, the groom, would go back to his father's house because that's where they're going to live. And he would now take time, usually about a year, to make the house, right? Get prepared for his bride to come. Get his, everything ready for the big marriage celebration. During this time, the bride would, you know, she's going to move. So she's getting everything packed up. She's getting her attendance ready. They didn't know. They kind of had an idea, but they didn't know when it would be. But they're getting prepared. And when the groom was ready, they would come, and of course, this is a big festival type thing. This is, this is a, they're going to be a week of feast and, and all of this. So they often did it at night and would come with torches, either across the town or from one city to another. And they would be crying out, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. And so as people who at night would hear that, they would begin to shout it out too. So the word would travel just ahead of time to the bride. So, she, so that her, her bridesmaids would come together and, you know, the suitcases are all packed, but she'd get them at the front door type thing. And then he would come, and now they would go as one party back to the father's house. Now, while they were gone, all of the wedding attendants, the ones who had been invited to this feast, would come and gather. Well, on that day, our married woman wore a veil. And so as they got back to now the groom's home, the bride and the groom would go into the wedding chamber, into that place that he had prepared, and they would consummate their marriage now. They would have physical intimacy. And for a week now, there would be celebration and meals. And I mean, you think of Jesus. Um, you think of Jesus at the uh, wedding of Canaan, right? They left, ran out of wine. Well, you know, it's not a two or three hour thing like our weddings. It's a week long. In fact, do you remember, this is before Jesus' time, but do you remember when Jacob had worked for Rachel for seven years and then her dad slipped Leah in there. Do you remember that story? Do you remember what he said when he found out? He says, fulfill your week to Leah and then I'll give you Rachel. Week, seven days. And so for seven days, the bride and the groom would stay hidden, enjoying the intimacy of marriage and then on the seventh day he would bring her out no more veil but in the glory now as his wife and they would present her to the entire wedding party and they would have the marriage feast folk Jesus came left his father's house and came to this world to pay our price our dowry with his own blood because we were sinners 
He made a covenant marriage with his church through his blood. He left. I go to prepare a place for you. We were left knowing he's going to come back for us. We don't know exactly when, but we were to have our life in order and live as though this could be the day that we hear the bridegroom is coming. One of these days, Jesus is going to return with a shout. Kind of wonder if that shout is, the bridegroom's coming. The bridegroom's coming. And he's going to take us to be with him for seven days. Seven years of tribulation. I think that's when the judgment seat of Christ and we get to know him in that intimate way of our lives being brought before him. And then you get to Revelation 19, which he calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride returns with his groom, or the, the groom returns with his bride unveiled for the world to see and now going into this kingdom with all the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. The reality is, I believe Jesus can come back today. And if you don't know Jesus, you're not going to be taken. And I want you to know that this world is going to go from bad to worse, right? Because you take out the power of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives from all over the world and gather them up. It's going to plunge the world into a time of judgment. 19 judgments, to be, honest, to be, to be exact, two of which just alone, over half of the world's population is killed. Interesting with the bold judgments, the last ones, they're so bad, people are going to want to die and God won't let them as he pours out his judgment preparing now for his kingdom here on earth. He came and he died for you. He paid the price. If you'll come to him by faith, today's the day of salvation. But for those of us who know him, right? So if we knew, right? If we knew that this Friday at 12 noon, Jesus was coming back, is there anything in our life that we would be changing? Is there anything in our lives that we would be putting in order? That's what we're called to, that's how we're called to live. We need to live that way today. We need to get it right today. We need to, we are to live every day in the anticipation that this could be the day that the bridegroom comes.